Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It's so good. A tape player in a plastic yeah. bag. Yeah. <laughs> so I should have set you up better for that apologize and, and so I said, I'm going to show you some of really the latest technology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when these die, they're not going to be replaceable. Namihi and welcome to Our Changing World. Let me fill you in. I'm standing in the Tūratea Reserve in the rain with Doug Armstrong of Massey University. His tape layer wrapped in plastic is playing North Allen Robin or Totowai calls to try to attract one to the area. But the rain is pouring down and the robins remain elusive. To be fair, it's pretty nasty. I can't really blame them. Also, there are only 40 robins in about 4,000 hectares of bush, so a tricky challenge to start with. The weather actually started out quite reasonable when I met Doug, along with postdoctoral researcher Zoe Stone, in the car park beside the reserve just outside Palmerston North. whether to put on my jacket or not. I wanted to learn about the intensive post-release monitoring of the Totowai that Zoe has been doing, part of a wider project with one big goal. So our research project is um, part of a bigger group called More Birds in the Bush, which is funded by MB, and it's a collaborative project between Landcare and a few universities around the country, and we've all got slightly different projects, but all of us are aiming to this idea of how can we get more birds in the bush in New Zealand. Pretty cool, right? More kiwi, more kokako, more robins, more everything. Because... Decades of work means that we can start thinking about bringing back things that are missing. And as Zoe says, everyone has their own part of the puzzle to focus on. So our section, that is me, Doug and Kevin, we're kind of looking at the reintroduction side of things, how what happens when we put birds back in the bush and how we can make that better. So this robin reintroduction, we didn't actually initiate that. So it started um, through two parties. One is the Palmerston North City Council. They administer, manage the whole area and then have initiated the uh, pest control. And the other big party is the Rangatane Iwi. It was their initiative to to, uh, bring back the the robins as well to this rowi where they went before. So that's a a gifting between Rauru, which is the the gifting iwi up at Bushy Park going between... um, and uh, Rangatane. So that was also an important part, was that relationship between the two iwi as well. So that's the bigger picture. Here is the backstory. Now, if you live in New Zealand, this is super familiar to you. Long ago, there was an Aotearoa with bush full of birds. The North Island robin was to be found, presumably, all over the North Island, wherever you find the habitat they like forest with dense canopies and a forest floor covered with leaf litter filled with delicious bug snacks. Then came, you guessed it, introduced predators and loss of habitat through forest clearing. We know this story. Some birds are wiped out and for others, the population plummets. Totowai hung on in central North Island. Today they are patchily distributed in the forest between Taranaki and Bay of Plenty, as well as on Little Barrier and Kapiti Islands, and now, because of reintroductions, on some other offshore predator-free islands too. 
Now, Totowai have been doing really well in fence predator-free reserves, such as Bushy Park in Wanganui. And this is where these 40 robins have come from, to be reintroduced back to the large area of Turutea. So Turutea is um, a really large bit of forest. It's a, sort of a broadleaf tower forest surrounding the main water catchment for Palmerston North. So it's where all our water supply comes from. And it's this really cool little piece of bush where they've been doing some really intensive pest control for almost 20 years or so um, now. And it, so it's got really low levels of rats and other pests that would usually be bad for little things like robins. We released robins here because we're kind of looking at this big forest reintroduction. We're used to putting robins in small little places where we know they'll be safe and they'll stay there. But this release, we really wanted to see how well they would do in a really large forest and if they would stay put and not disappear. And this is why they want to monitor these birds and track their movements so intensely, to see where they are going. Yeah, so we're really interested in to know once we release a population of robins, you know, how far are they going to go? So... The Turutea landscape, there's about 5,000 hectares of um, forest that is managed for pests. So we've got um, rat traps and bait stations across that 5,000 hectares. But then the rest of the forest doesn't have much predator control and it's still quite good forest. So the birds could move quite a long way. So we're really interested in knowing when we release a bird in a large forest landscape like this, how far do they move? And then what does that mean for management? So do we need to expand how far we move, we're managing pests or will it be okay? Will they stay in that nice safe area that we're protecting? So after all this monitoring, hopefully we'll get a whole bunch of data that shows us where all the birds across the two months that we monitored, where we found birds, and we can look at how far they were away from where we released them, and then we might get a sense of what those average movements are and also what the extreme movements are. Because if you have some birds staying close but then some birds moving six kilometres away, you might have to take that into account when you're doing management. So here's the challenge, finding 40 small birds in 4,000 hectares of bush. Let me just paint you a quick picture of the birds first. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, there are three kinds of robin. North Island, South Island and Chatham Island. If, like me, you come from Europe, probably I say robin and you think a little brown bird with a distinctive red breast. Not the case in New Zealand. North Island robins are a little bigger than the European robins, about 18 centimetres tall. And they are dark, kind of a streaky grey-black with a little pale area on their belly or breast. They look quite different to the South Island species, which has a much bigger pale patch, and very different to the Chatham Island ones, which are all black. So to do their monitoring, to find where these little birds go, Zoe and Doug use transmitters that are attached to the birds, kind of like little birdie backpacks, before they are released. They weigh about 30 grams, so they're quite a small little bird. Our transmitters, to keep keep it safe, um, we usually kind of try and stick to a less than 5% body weight for a transmitter, and so our transmitters weigh less than a gram, so they're very small, and they'll sit on their little, um, just above their tail, and so that's to try and avoid it interacting with their wings and making sure they can still fly and act normally, and so we have a very small little transmitter that we're trying to pick up in the large forest. Yeah, needle in haystack. Needle in a haystack, yeah. Very, very small needle in a large haystack. Actually, we recorded that chat later on in the day, after we had given up on the rain and went to have tea in Zoe's house near the reserve. But in the morning, when the weather was good, Zoe and Doug showed me the latest technology in bird monitoring. And no, I'm not referring to Doug's tape layer this time. We've got our flight path uploading. 
drone's going to turn on, Doug. We're climbing, we're at about 40 meters above the ground right now, so it's gonna go a bit higher. Wow, 70 meters up is quite high. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot higher than you think it is, yeah. yeah. Okay, so now it's gonna go over the forest. So hopefully we can, and because we've got that receiver logging, um, hopefully when we get it back, it'll be able to find us some birds. So do you have grid patterns that cover the entire area? No. So that's one of the problems with um, this technology. It's kind of at the stage where it could be really useful, but there's some limitations to it. So because we need to keep it within line of sight, we're very much restricted to the kind of areas in the bush that we can fly it in. So okay. there's some areas that we just can't quite get to because we don't have good vantage points or something. There are also other limitations in how clean the data is. But Zoe and Doug want to test this drone-based method of monitoring because there is potential for huge advantages too. Yeah, so we use this drone to track our robins in the bush. So it, at the moment we've got a big aerial set up around it. So this aerial is going to be a help pick up all the radio signals that are coming from our robins. Um, and then it's got a little receiver that logs all that. So it can actually detect, um, I think it can detect about 300 signals at once. We've only got 40 birds out, so it can easily um, track, scan for all of those signals at once as it flies over the bush. And so hopefully when you bring it back, you can download the data and they'll show a little peak in the frequencies if it actually flew over the bird. So it's very useful for trying to actually find birds in large areas, is the idea anyway. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> not totally straightforward. Yeah. Um, the, the output is a little bit confusing, so it's not just a straightforward matter of, oh yeah, we came back and we found number two and number six and number three. Because it's just on a radio frequency, you get a lot of static, so a lot of noise in the background. So you get this graph at the end with all these little squiggles on it. And then if you get a bird, you might get a slightly higher squiggle than the rest of the noise. So you've got to try and try and figure out which ones are actually real birds and which ones is just that background radio noise. So you're not just looking for a robin, you're looking for particular transmitter frequencies on particular robins. Yep, yep. So we're looking for the actual individual robin. So we can tell, based on that frequency number, we can tell exactly which robin it is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Our traditional way of doing this on the ground, we have to do it one at a time. So we're searching for one, each of those birds one at a time. So we'll, we'll turn the receiver to the right frequency and do a scan, and then we have to turn it to the next one. But the good thing about the drone is it does them all at once. So, yeah, so it's a little bit more advanced in that one. Okay. So we're going to get it to come home. Zoe tells me that every second, the drone takes five recordings of signal strength of all the frequencies it is monitoring, as well as its location and the time. And so this list of signal strength numbers is what they get, which is then run through some software to try and sort the signal from the noise. And we're done. <laughs> now we can turn the receiver off and then we can get it back to a computer and hopefully it'll tell us if a bird was in that area. So that is part of the work they are doing here, an experiment within a research study to test how efficient the drone is in helping them monitor the birds. But to do that test, you need to know if the drone is actually picking up birds, which means, alongside the drone work, and to make sure there's full coverage of the reserve, the monitoring is also being done in the traditional way. Zoe 
walking through the reserve with a receiver and some of the robin's favorite snacks. So these are little um, so mealworms. So robins love insects and they especially love mealworms. Oh, they're like, um, for a bird, a mealworm is basically like an ice cream cone. Yeah. It's just a little, nice little bag of fat, and that's nice exactly what, fatty little what, worm, what yeah. birds look for when they're foraging, is nice yeah. little bags of fat, and we talk about them be getting addicted to them. So, oh, really? You know, so to begin with, they just go, oh, that's interesting, there's a little insect there, or insect larvae, and they go and feed on it, and then they sort of go, mmm, that is so good. <laughs> and And then... After not too long, they get used to the idea that these, you know, these two-legged things that walk through the forest are the great gods that, that provide the mealworms, <laughs> and then they follow, and they follow us around. <laughs> and that's basically how we find them. They follow us around, and then we throw them down. They go, mmm, mealworms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we use those mealworms to try to bring them in and kind of teach them that we're not too scary after we've put them in a box and moved them across the country. Oh, yeah. Um, so try and get them a bit more accustomed to us so that when we come back in spring to kind of check out their breeding, <laughs> that they're a bit more happy to come say hi. But robins in general, they're, uh, they're not shy, are they? I mean... They, they can be. Oh, can they? Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the things that people often think because they meet the friendly ones. Of course. Um, and the, in yeah, general, okay. the friendly ones tend to be the juveniles. You know, yeah. these, these young things that are just sort of full of enthusiasm. They'll come up and go, ooh, what are you? Will you be my friend? Um, but uh, especially in like mainland forests where there are a lot of predators around, they can, they can actually be quite shy and mm. tend to avoid people. Yeah, okay. But surprisingly, they, they, as Zoe was just saying, they're quite forgiving because all of these animals, they have been caught by us luring them with mealworms into a trap and then catching them and then you know keeping them in their box for a few days and then transporting them all the way here and then dragging them across a lake and then releasing them. And then we you know go out a few days later and find... Well, we didn't find them all, but we found some of them. Mm. And, you know, and they say, oh, hello. And we feed them mealworms again. So, so you get some that are yeah. definitely look at you and be like, nope, I don't trust oh, you. Oh, and right. and then yeah. some of them will be like, oh, you're the one with the worms. I'll yeah. come back. Um, so yeah. they're, they definitely have their own little personalities, each bird. Um, yeah. We've yeah. had some that will, you know, you, we won't see all day, but because we've got the transmitters on them, we can pick them up and you can tell that they're just following you just out of sight because they... A little bit nervous of you still, but they're still interested in you. Oh, like number yeah. 18. Number 18, yeah. yes. Yeah. We had a bird number 18 that followed us all day, but we didn't get to see it because it didn't want to come in. Mm. As we walk, Doug and Zoe tell me about the predator control efforts that have been done to get this area ready. Yeah, it's been almost 20 years of uh, trapping and, um, and some toxin use as well. So, yeah, the uh, possums are... I think down to very low, low levels and rats are kind of, you know, they're, they're around for sure, but sort of low to moderate densities. So a lot less than there would be without the pit control. So there's a very good um, track network that the pest control guys have put through the reserve. And so the tracks are generally kind of spaced maybe 200 metres apart. Um, so it's a little bit wider than we'd like, like a really high-density rat control, but it's pretty good for the size of the area. So they have, and especially because of the terrain as well, it's very rugged. So some of these 
treks are going very steep up hills and into gullies. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. along those tracks, we've got um, Doc 200s, which we've actually just got one right next to us, yeah. um, to try and trap all those rats and also get a few stoats. Um, and then there's bait stations along there as well. So it's this very intensive pest control. Now we go up the hill. Actually, this is my first fieldwork recording in this job, so I'm going to share with you some things I've learned. First, never try to keep up with the postdoctoral researcher who has spent the last few weeks hiking hundreds of kilometres looking for robins. Second, the recording of my breathing while going up the hill makes me sound just as unfit as I felt at that moment. And third, on slippy uphill ground, I should probably just put the microphones away. <laughs> anyway, we make it to the top where Zoe pulls out the receiver to see if she can detect any birds. Um, so where we are on the ridgeline right now, you can kind of see across, if we look through the trees, we can kind of see that we can see through to the next ridge over on the one side. And also on the other side, we kind of get a good view out to the other ridgeline. So it's quite a good spot to do a bit of a scan because it means our aerial will pick up. Um, signals for quite a long distance so you can kind of see if there's anyone around. Maybe also mention that just down below us now is the main dam, is the main lake as well and the uh, robins were released just on the other side of that. We try to, tried to put them as central into the park as possible because we don't want them to go to the edges and then get out of our pest control area because that's where they might be a bit more in danger. So we put them as in the middle as possible. Um, with the lake in the way. With the lake in the way as one edge to try and keep them on the one side. Although they seem to have jumped over the lake quite easily. Um, but that's fine because it means they're a bit easier to get to actually. So we're kind of close to where we release them. So if there's a few birds still hanging around we might be able to pick them up. They're a little bit far from the aerials but we could have a look. So you're, you're wearing... Some kind of machine. Okay. Bio-tracking. <laughs> You're wearing a machine. So I'm wearing some aerials and bits and pieces. It's called a bio-tracker, but it's basically a big radio receiver. So again, think if you're listening to your, your favourite radio station, we can program that in, into this little receiver. And so we've got all those robin frequencies programmed into this one. Um, so we can just scroll through each of those frequencies and do a bit of a scan. So I'm also holding an aerial. Uh, it's called a Yagi antenna. And it's kind of our traditional ground way of searching for things. So it's like a TV, TV aerial kind of on the top of your roof. Um, and we can swivel that around. And it's very directional, so it will tell us what direction that signal is coming from. So you have to do an entire sweep around to try and cover the area. So we can turn on our receiver. And what we'll get is the lovely sound of static. <laughs> <laughs> so this, if you're a... Wildlife tracker, you get very much used to the sound of static. You start dreaming about it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so this is what we listen to all day. So that's that background noise. So when I was saying with the drone, we get that little squiggle in our lines. This is what those, that little noise okay, is. Gotcha. And when we get a bird, hopefully we get a beep. Um, okay. So that's what our beep is. So at the moment, let's start a scan. So I'll start at bird one. And bird one has a frequency of 160.142. And so I'm going to start scanning for that one. Just do a slow sweep. Oop, and we've got bird one. That's pretty amazing. Oop, gone. Yep. I don't know if you heard that beep there. I know I didn't at the time. Later, Zoe did a demonstration for me, which is what you're listening to now. 
including how it sounds as the bird is moving away, which gives you extra information, like that the bird is still alive and moving. I was just astounded that Zoe was so tuned into the noise that she heard it immediately. And it really drove home for me this issue with weak signal to noise and how it might be tricky to distinguish in the drone data. Doug pulls out a clipboard and a compass to note down the detection, while Zoe keeps going through the different frequencies to see if she can pick up any of the other birds. Hi, number eight. Eight usually hangs around somewhere here. They tell me that, up until today, the weather has been beautiful, which is really good for a translocation like this. You want nice weather for the birds to settle into their new surroundings. And it has also meant that Zoe has been able to get out into the field doing this monitoring pretty much every day since they were released. And so she is starting to get a picture of where the birds are going and where some are settling. Um, We can't have a fence to keep out all the pests, but that means there's edges, and edges mean that there's more pests, there's people's houses, there's dogs, there's cats, there's everything, and also the forest just keeps going. So we're in Tiritia, which is at the very northern tip of the Taradua Ranges. So, you know, if these birds wanted to, they could go all the way down to Wellington. Um, They could just follow the forest down. So robins don't really like hopping over forest gaps. They kind of won't move kind of more than 150, 120 metres across a gap. So they, they really stick to the forest. But because this whole forest is really connected to that Tararu Ranges, if they wanted to, they could go all the way to south. So luckily that hasn't happened, as we can tell. But what we're really interested in is, yeah, if there's these large forest bits, how far do they go? And do they just stick around? So as I've been monitoring them the last two months or so, um, we're kind of getting, starting to get a sense of where they're settling and also where they're jumping around. So we've had some birds, you know, we've picked up in one spot one day and then we've picked up the next day four kilometres away. So they're quite capable of moving four kilometres in one day, as far as we can tell so far. But we still need to, once I've finished all the monitoring, we'll get a bit more detail on those numbers. But yeah, they're quite capable of moving around. But since we're like two months in now, we're kind of starting to think that some of them are settling you know they've kind of found a spot that they quite like they might have found a mate that they quite like um so they're kind of sticking around so bird eight um we've maybe three or four times we've heard singing and have picked up signals where we are now so he kind of like he seems to be hanging around here how much space do robins like Oh, this area would probably fit in like 10,000 robins or something okay, like that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. There's definitely space yeah. for more robins. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> where they came from, up at uh, Bushy Park, near, near Kaiiwi, is the closest settlement. And so that's about 90 hectares in there, and we have estimated the densities at about six robins per hectare. I don't know <laughs> if they'd ever get quite as dense in here. But yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of robins to go. So they're already finding their space. And later, Doug and Zoe explained that finding their own space is important to them. They generally live in, in pairs. Yeah. And they, they tend to stick in the same breeding pair till one dies. And they're very, what we, we call, term, use the term territorial and sedentary, which basically means at some point in their lives, and it's usually within the first few months of their life, they'll set up a permanent territory. And that will be something like, a third or a half a hectare, and then the two, the male, a male and female, will live there together. So you can go back year after year, and usually you'll find the same bird in that spot, unless it's been kicked out by a more aggressive bird, but generally it's the same. It's probably a general animal thing. It's definitely a bird thing that you get this sort of ownership means a lot. 
So once something owns a territory, it basically tends to be quite dominant over any usurpers. So Which we can in. use to our advantage when we're yeah. searching for them in the field. So we can use those playback recordings. So if we do a mail call and so once they've established their territories in the in the bush which is starting to be about now some of them seem to be kind of hanging around in the same spots but we can play those calls and then especially in the breeding season they'll come because they're they think that that's their spot so who's this intruder in their spot so you can kind of use that to kind of bring them closer to you hence standing in the rain with a tape recorder playing robin calls but despite this and despite throwing some little twigs as fake mealworms to entice them out, the robins stay sheltered, and we decide to call it a day. As we have tea and Bicky's in Zoe's house, she pulls out a map of the reserve and showed me just how much ground she has covered. It's a massive effort to track these birds. But the whole reason is to feed into the wider knowledge around translocations. North Island robin translocations on the mainland have been tried, and many have failed before. And nobody wants that. As Doug explains, no one goes lightly into translocations. There are a lot of factors to take into account. Yeah, the, the simple one is just, is it a... First of all, is it a reasonable place for the species? So if it definitely isn't, of course, you don't want to do it. Um, so that... That's one factor. Um, and then there's a, just a lot of uh, human factors. Basically, what do people want to achieve? What people attached to an area such as, you know, such as the iwi or as often community groups, you know, what do they want to achieve for their area in terms of restoration? And they all then suggest, oh, we want to bring that back this species or that species. So that, that becomes one of the objectives. And then you get into, uh, is there a place you can take the animals from mm-hmm. um so say an extreme case you had like the, the black robins you know there were only seven of them left at the time people decided to do the translocation and they were all moved uh, so that's a really extreme case where you're just completely moving a species and generally we're you're removing a small very small proportion of individuals either from captivity or the wild but you have to take that into account whether you can source those animals and then there's there's the long-term issues in terms of whether the population's going to survive genetically in the long term, or they're going to become inbreeding or have problems that way. And then there's the technical sort of issues as well, um, because all of that can be fine. But if you, if you don't know how to actually capture mm-hmm. and move the animals, then um, that it can be difficult. Yeah. In the case of robins or totowai, um, they're easy to capture. You can stick them in a box and put them in a car and move them. Just to, to give another extreme, I was involved in a feasibility study for Atlantic walrus in Canada about eight years ago. And in that case, we were talking about moving walrus from the Arctic back to their original range um, in the Gaspé Peninsula in the Atlantic coast and moving, you know, moving walruses from the Arctic and releasing them is, is, you know, not just not a trivial thing to do. So, yeah, so you get this whole range of uh, scenarios in terms of technical feasibility. I did not expect for our conversation to go from robins to walruses. But maybe this is one reason to be glad that there aren't any large native land mammals in New Zealand that need reintroduction. 
As Aotearoa New Zealand moves forward towards predator-free 2050, the goal is that large areas of the mainland will once more be safe spaces for some of the native species. And Doug and Zoe hope that the work that they are doing in Turatea will help inform decisions of what happens next. Just being able to improve our predictions, you know, that's a big problem with reintroduction is just going into places with our eyes open because you're you're basically taking a bunch of plants and animals and putting them somewhere where often you've never observed them. So there's a whole lot of uncertainty about then how they're going to interact with that, that place. So I guess the main thing we're trying to do is then the next time you do a reintroduction or if you're making decisions about how to manage an area that you actually can make some decent predictions rather than just a wild guess. If we have a community group or a council yeah. group saying, oh, we have this cool bit of bush that we, we've been doing some stuff, we want to release some robins or any other species, we might be have better data to inform them and be like, mm, that might not quite work. Yeah. That might be okay. That might work quite great. But um, yeah, if we can help improve those decisions, that would be good. Huge thanks to Doug Armstrong and Zoe Stone. This episode was produced by me, Claire Concannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. Our Changing World covers all manner of topics, from birds, bats, buildings, our bodies, and all the bits in between. So to avoid missing an episode, follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you follow on Apple, and if you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review it. It helps other people find and enjoy it too. And if you're not on Apple, you can help by just telling one friend. If birds are your thing, we've got your back. Visit our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and enjoy a huge back catalogue of bird episodes. Also, we will put up photos and links related to the story so you can get to know a bit more. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, we're there too. Come and say hi, we're at RNZ Science. Now, these robins were actually supposed to be moved in April 2020, but to hear stories of the impact that 2020 had on some of the lives of young New Zealanders, I can recommend the RNZ podcast Generation COVID. You can find it in the podcast and series tab of the RNZ website. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki. 